following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Yesterday I spoke to you about a mighty storm that is coming. I could hear it ripping and tearing and breaking. That mighty storm is almost upon us. Now, what is so desperately concerning my heart is that the church in America is utterly unprepared for this storm that is coming, and it will be utterly destructive to the church if it is not prepared. And there are some very specific things we need to do, both individually and corporately, if we are going to be prepared for this storm. I want to... I want to walk with you through some just introductory material today regarding what must be done if we are going to prepare. And that that which we need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But many of you have not been taught about the Holy Spirit, and some of you believe you believe things that are simply not true about the Holy Spirit. And so when the Kundalini Spirit has been poured out in so-called revivals, as it was poured out, the Toronto Blessing, I went to the Toronto Blessing. I wanted the presence of God. Instead, I found the Kundalini Spirit, people barking like dogs, rolling on the floor, no sense of holiness, no sense of repentance, just... The laughing gospel. That's kundalini. It's it's Buddhist. It's demonic. It's not from the Lord. So today, I'd like to walk with you through a basic understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, what his work is, and what we must do to prepare for his coming. But first... I want to speak to you about a treasure that God has given to me. It is a treasure so precious that I'm even hesitant to speak about it. It's a treasure that I guard very carefully in my heart. It is worth more to me than a million dollars. If you offered me the gift of a million dollars for my treasure, I would say no. And what is that treasure? That treasure is a deep, inner presence of the Holy Spirit. It is a deep... It is a deep love that I have for Jesus Christ. It is a a deep abiding love that I have for people. It is not a love that comes and goes. It is a love that has grown in my heart through great trial and tribulation and pain and anguish, where I had to make the decision, will I hate that person? Will I cut them off? Or will I just love them and forgive them and recognize in the anguish of their own heart they need to be loved? I've met a few people who have this love in their hearts, but not very many. Some of you have discovered that love covers over many sins. I've also discovered that. Some of you have discovered that love transforms people. 
that there's that it's very difficult to fight against the outpouring of compassionate love. People do it, and they run, and they leave, and it's okay. This love does not have sticky fingers. This love does not make demands or accusations. This love is a treasure that God has placed in my heart. And it is with an inner presence of the Holy Spirit, my most treasured possession. I often, as I'm reading the scriptures, begin to weep as I see the incredible love that Jesus has for me and for his people. And that only increases the love I have in my heart for you and for Jesus. You see, this treasure of love that I have in my heart It's not something that I can keep to myself, but it's something that I guard very carefully. I guard it against bitterness, against anger, against judgments, against accusations. I guard this love in my heart the same way I would if you gave me a million dollars in cash, I wouldn't let it lay around. If I were going to have to keep it safe, I'd be very careful. And believe me, I would keep it safe. And if there were no banks I could put it in, I'd put it in my pocket. I'd button it up. I'd guard it carefully. I would not lose it. It's the same with this love. I guard it very carefully. I tend to this love by giving it to Jesus and by giving it to you and to his people. Giving it especially to sinners and calling them to come to Jesus because Jesus is the source of this love Jesus is the keeper of this love in my heart. Now, I don't know how much love you have in your heart for Jesus. I don't know how much love you have in your heart for your brothers and sisters and for sinners. It's the most precious gift you can have. Jesus died on Calvary for you and for me. While I was yet a sinner, he loved me. While I was yet walking in degradation and sin and, and wickedness, he loved me. And now he's told me to love others that same way. To guard it from selfishness to guard it carefully. It is, without a doubt, my most prized possession. Without it, I would die. I could not live now without it. It is the controlling influence of my life. 
the abiding love of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So in that love, I'd like to share with you a background and understanding. Some of you are going to say, Pastor, I know all that you're saying. Then it will be a wonderful review for you. But many of you have never heard the depth that I'm going to share with you. And each day this week will go deeper. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the coming into a person's life of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. So we have to look at this experience of being immersed in a divine power and presence, a divine love. So let's look at who is the Holy Spirit and what is his nature. And let's pray now as we begin. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and pour out your love in our hearts today. There are some who are listening who are discouraged, who are cast down, who have been seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit for years and have not received it. Lord, I'm one of those. But my heart is filled with faith and belief and courage today because I know you're coming in power to equip us in your church to face this mighty storm that is coming upon us with such ferocity. Lord, thank you. I ask you to bless with your presence each person who is listening today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. First, the term Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit are interchangeable in the scriptures. They come from the same Greek word. The word Holy Ghost comes from an old English saying, Holy Guest, Holy Guest. The Holy Spirit is not an abstract identity or a remote influence. The Holy Spirit is not an influence that comes upon you. He is a distinct personality, a person of the Godhead with all the attributes of any member of the Trinity. God the Father... God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he has personality, and he has all the authority of divinity, of deity. The Holy Spirit was present at creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read, "...the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters." From creation and on through the scriptures, we see many evidences of his work. But in the New Testament, we find a much fuller revelation of the workings of the Holy Spirit. Every person who believes in Jesus does so because of the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who regenerates or who restores or who makes us into new people. He regenerates the heart of man. The Gospel of John 3, verses 3 to 5. Also Titus, chapter 3, verse 5. The Holy Spirit sanctifies or makes holy the believer. Romans fifteen sixteen. 
and 1 Corinthians 6.11. However, the filling of the Spirit or the immersing, the baptism of the Spirit, is an experience for the believer beyond the gift of being born again. It's beyond sanctification. Although the baptism of the Holy Spirit is typified in the Old Testament and alluded to by the Old Testament prophets, it's not until after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon believers. When Jesus completed his work on the earth and he returned to the Father, the Holy Spirit came as the promised comforter. And so what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, we hear a lot of people talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit today. And there are a number of different theological positions regarding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many people have varying opinions about what it is. Some say that this experience was only for the early church and not for the believers today. Others teach that a person receives the Holy the Holy Spirit at the point of his conversion. And that's true. Look at the first chapter of Ephesians where we are sealed by the Holy Spirit when we are born from above. But that's not what I'm talking about. Some think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking about tongues. But I believe we need to base our belief not on the opinions or theological positions of denominations or of people, but we need to go to the Scripture. We need to go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? John the Baptist prophesied that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew 3, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The word that's translated baptism is from the Greek word baptizo, which means to be totally immersed. If you were properly baptized, according to Scripture, you were immersed in water. You were not sprinkled. You were immersed. You were put under. The word baptizo means to literally put your hands under the water if you're washing your hands. It is literally being totally immersed. So when we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are completely, totally immersed and covered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may say, have I been baptized in the Holy Spirit? If you have to ask that question, you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember the day I was baptized in water just as well, May 12, 1952. I believe it as though... and experience it still today as though it were yesterday. I have every detail fixed in my mind and will forever. I remember the feel of the water. I remember what it felt like to be placed under the water and the joy of being brought up out of it and being a new creature in Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus used the word baptizo in connection with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He explained to his disciples that just as John had baptized with water, they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
the word baptize gave his followers an idea of what they were to expect, that they would be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now, some 800 years before Jesus came to earth, the prophet Joel wrote of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. His account prophesies events that we've seen fulfilled within the past century. In Joel chapter 2, verses 23 and then 28 through 29, we read, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days I will pour out my Spirit. Now, Joel probably did not understand the prophecy that he gave, but God moved In his heart and mind, he gave him these words spoken by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to let us know that there would be an outpouring of the Spirit of God. The former rain pertained to the outpouring on the day of Pentecost. The latter rain pertains to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that began in the 20th century. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come. He instructed them to tarry in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father, which was the infilling or the immersing of the Holy Spirit. You know the story. A group of 120 people gathered in the upper room with one purpose in mind. The Lord had promised he would send power upon them, and they were determined to receive it. So the scriptures tell us that something happened in the upper room that they'd never seen or experienced before. The power of God descended upon them, and they were filled. They were immersed. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. We read, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts 2, 1-4. And later this week, we're going to look in depth at these passages. God made his presence known to this group of believers with an initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Spirit was accompanied by two manifestations, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and the appearance of cloven tongues like as of fire. John the Baptist had foretold one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, Matthew 3.11 and Luke 3.16. The two physical manifestations made a graphic picture of the coming of the fire of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of this amazing event was that those who had been filled began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this was not speaking in gibberish. This was speaking an actual language. We'll talk more about that later. Now, 
Peter stood, and he spoke to the crowd that gathered because of the sound, the sound of the wind. People rushed from all over. And Peter's sermon on that day resulted in the salvation of 3,000 people. The Holy Spirit, or Pentecost, dispensation, began then and continues until now. In fact, this event marked the birth of of the church. It is this event that must take place again in the church if we are going to be prepared for the storm that is rushing upon us and it will destroy those who have not come fully into Jesus Christ and been regenerated or made new and many must be filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of the gospel. I'll be so bold as to say the gift of the Holy Spirit is for all believers to do the work of the gospel. For all believers are called, according to Matthew, to be fishers of men. And if in this last year you have not won anyone to Jesus if you found the ground hard and unproductive, it is because you have not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the years that followed the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit continued to be poured out upon believers. Scriptures tell us about some of these instances. The Holy Spirit was given about eight years later to Gentiles in the household of Cornelius. This was the coming of Pentecost to Gentiles. Those with Peter immediately recognized that the believers gathered in the house of this Roman centurion had received the gift of the Holy Spirit just as they had, for they heard the they heard them speaking with tongues, and they heard them magnifying God, Acts 10.46. Now, in periods prior to the 20th century, God again poured out his Spirit on individuals here and there. John Wesley the Third Great Awakening, the experience of George Whitfield, I experienced it in a small way with the Jesus movement. I saw what could happen when he came down on a whole room full of several hundred students and they began to weep and repent, be moved by the Holy Spirit. Classes were canceled. It changed the whole school. But the beginning of the latter reign, I believe, the latter reign prophesied by, the, by Joel, happened in April of 1906, to a small group of people from several different Christian organizations and churches who came together in a home located on Bonnie Bray Street in Los Angeles, California. And their purpose was to seek for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. They'd heard of this experience being received by believers in the Midwest, and these people were born-again Christians— they were entirely sanctified, and we'll talk more about what that means later. They were all of one accord as those in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And upon this group on Bonnie Bray Street, God poured out his Spirit and baptized them in the fullness of that word. They experienced the same outward evidence 
of having received the baptism of the Spirit, as did the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They too spoke in other languages, not gibberish, but other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And word began to spread, and that's when they moved from the house to a very humble little dirt-floored barn on Azusa Street. As time went on, the power of the Holy Spirit continued to fall, and thousands received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People flocked from the four corners of the earth to kindle their torches, and then they went forth to spread this flame of revival, of righteousness, of holiness. I've read the newsletters from Azuzu Street. I have them, in fact, copies. Everyone who was there was entirely sanctified. That was the first work, to repent, to get clean, to walk in Jesus. Their paper was called The Apostolic Faith. The headlines of the first edition blazed out the news, Pentecost has come. Many are being converted and sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues as they did on the day of Pentecost. That was the headline. Now, in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, essential steps had to be taken. A person must first be born again, born from above, justified by faith, made righteous. Scripture is clear that the Holy Spirit is not going to go to the unconverted. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The second step, and we'll deal more with that later this week, entire sanctification occurs when the saved person goes deeper into total consecration and God purges the heart. This is a work of God. Believers are not only forgiven for committed acts of sin, but they also need to be delivered from the inherited nature of sin through entire sanctification. The old sinful nature must be crucified so that the new nature of Christ can be fully expressed. Romans 8, the second verse. Then the heart is ready for the gift of the Holy Spirit. You recognize that the church today is not ready for the Holy Spirit. There must come a great crucifixion in the American church. We must be crucified with Christ. The old man must be put to death in us. Until that happens, the Holy Spirit will not come. That's why the Lord has directed me to preach Romans, the sixth chapter. Please read it, cry out over it, pray it. Be crucified with Christ. The 120 people who gathered in the upper room at the time of the initial outpouring were saved individuals. They were the close followers of Jesus. They were obviously committed and consecrated to following his instructions. They had gathered in that upper room and had continued in prayer and supplication. There were things they had to get clean. They gathered in that upper room and they continued in prayer. And when the day of Pentecost came, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, they were with one accord in one place. Jesus had prayed for them to experience the unity described in that phrase in John 17, 9. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. This prayer was not for the lost, but for those who were already his followers. And he prayed for God to sanctify them. John seventeen seventeen. When the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were of one accord, one accord evidence 
that they had been entirely sanctified. Salvation and sanctification accomplish the forgiveness of sins and the removal of the sin nature. Then the condemnation for committed sins and the nature of sin are gone, and the heart is suitable for the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The God who wants to live within us is a holy God. The place where he dwells must be made holy. It must be prepared. So we must get the sin taken care of and the heart cleansed for the habitation of the holy to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost leaders at the turn of the 20th century were from were firm advocates of salvation and sanctification as a second work of grace. These included William Seymour, the wonderful black pastor who led this move of God. He was the leader of the Azuzu Street Revival. Charles Parham, Seymour's teacher, and Florence Crawford, one of the key early Azuzu Street workers, they understood and taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was the evidence of speaking in tongues, was an experience for those who had been saved and subsequently sanctified. The controversy over whether it was necessary to be sanctified prior to receiving the Holy Spirit began when W. H. Durham, who had visited Azusa Street, he was a Presbyterian, he initially embraced the teachings preached in Chicago Pentecostal Convention in 1910 and sought to nullify the experience of sanctification as a second work of grace, calling his new doctrine the finished work. This was a departure from what Parham, Seymour, and Crawford had taught. The Azusa Street leaders denounced Durham's doctrine, saying that it made an opening for spiritual counterfeits of the genuine Pentecostal experience. They held that the Bible clearly teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for those who've been truly converted, sanctified holy, and are living a victorious life without sin. Now you see how that desperate wickedness of the finished work where Christ forgave you your past, present, and future sins when he died on Calvary. That was a wicked Presbyterian teaching, and it's a lie. Now, how do we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How do we receive this experience? It's not complicated. It comes through prayer and total consecration. When the heart and the life are pure before God, the believer should then ask God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is God's desire and intention to bestow this gift on hearts that are prepared to receive it. In Luke eleven nine through 10 we read, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh find it, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And the writer goes on to describe how earthly fathers give to their children, and then asks, If then, being evil, knowing how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Luke eleven thirteen. Although many consecrations were made, when we sought to be sanctified. There may yet be something that God is trying to get at by the Spirit, drawing out of our lives when we seek for the Spirit's infilling. God requires a complete submission of soul, mind, and body, and spirit. He wants to be in charge of every thought and plan, and sometimes it takes fervent prayer to let him completely divert every area of our life. Obedience goes hand in hand with submission. Peter proclaimed that the Holy Spirit is given to those who are obedient. Now, I'm going to carry this further tomorrow, but I want to speak personally to to you right now. 
Do not be discouraged if you have sought the baptism of the Holy Spirit and it has not come. I can testify to you, not having yet received this baptism, that I know I will receive it. Because I know the Lord is drawing me closer and closer in total consecration to him. He has filled my heart with his love. John Wesley said that is Christian perfection. Love. I know that this work, some of you are going to be very upset by what I've said today, and you're going to disagree strongly, and you're going to say, no, no, pastor, I have the Holy Spirit. Do you have the evidence of speaking in tongues? Do you have the evidence of winning souls to Jesus? If you have won not one person to Jesus in this past year, you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've been baptized in a spirit, but not the Holy Spirit. The mark of a person who is baptized in the Holy Spirit is that he has the power, she has the power for witness and testimony that wins the lost to Jesus. The purpose of giving the Holy Spirit, contrary to what some theologians teach, they teach that the giving of the Holy Spirit is for the power to live above our sin. Wrong. That must happen before we receive the baptism. The purpose, according to Scripture, for the giving of the Holy Spirit is for the power, that word in the Greek is dunamis, dynamite, the explosive power to win the lost in large numbers to Jesus, to minister to the sick and heal them, to raise the dead, to speak prophetically. Whatever the extent of the gifts are that the Holy Spirit brings, he will bring gifts to his people. Now, you understand, the storm is coming. And it is going to blow many of you away because you have refused to enter into entire consecration and repentance before God. You are filled with pride and with self. You're very religious, but you're unwilling to lay it all down for the cross of Jesus Christ. In the coming storm, you will be blown away. I'm standing by faith, though, that many, many, many will prepare their hearts and their lives in total consecration to Jesus, where Jesus becomes everything to you. And he fills your heart with love and compassion and mercy. where he comes to you in power. It's time. If you'll be honest with me, you will admit that the church is powerless to face the enemy. That we can have our programs, and many of them are excellent educational programs. We can have our dinners. We can have our preaching. But the one thing that's missing in the modern American church is holiness that leads to power. We're going to have to be made holy by the presence of the Holy Spirit, regenerating and restoring building us up to make us a fit habitation for the infilling and the indwelling and the total immersion in the Holy Spirit for the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to recognize the absolute, essential nature 
This week we'll look carefully again at John 14, 15, 16, 17, Romans 6, and many other passages. There is no substitute for what I'm talking about today. There must be an earnest, full-court press to prepare our hearts for the coming of the latter rain in power that we might stand up against this storm and declare the word of God to America. If you miss this, you will be left out. Every believer must come into the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you're unwilling to meet those conditions, you will be blown away and you will lose your walk with Jesus. Now, I, I want to pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to your church and gently and lovingly call your church to the crucifixion with Jesus and to baptism. In your Holy Spirit, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I am utterly given at the prayer chapel to praying and waiting upon the Lord for the fullness of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're welcome to come and wait with us. In fact, in the new place that I'm moving to this Saturday, one of the upper bedrooms I am calling the dying out room. A place where you can go and sit before the Lord to die out. I'd love to hear from you. We're coming to the end of the month and we're still short. Would you write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. We're about $500 short. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Click on the upper right-hand button, and you can give online. If God is calling you, and you want this work of the gospel to go forward and to remain on the air, then give as the Lord prompts you. Thank you to each of you who has already given We're almost there. God bless you. I'll talk to you tomorrow.